Hey there, it's Alexander Jay, and I'm the host of the NBA Recap Show on the Mojo Sports Network. If you're new to the show, please follow us on Instagram at Mojo Sports Network, or give us a rating wherever you are listening to this podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the NBA Recap Show on the Mojo Sports Network. We've got a full squad this week to talk hoops and everything that happened this week in the NBA. From the mean streets of Melbourne, he's our sports facility owner and a fantasy team fanatic. Julian Balthasar sits with us today on the pod. Julian, hey, are you? For having me. Love being in the starting five, as always. We wouldn't dare push you to the bench, mate. <laughs> Next up, you may have heard him on 91.3 Sports FM or DRN1 Sports in Perth. It's our mini basketball encyclopedia, Yuri Bilsich. Hello. Hey, Alex. How's it going? Good. Thank you. From the Sports Confidential podcast, it's Shepherd's favorite son, Jack Brophy, is joining us today. I'm back, guys, and uh, I'm wearing a yellow hoodie because the Nuggets and the Suns are playing right now, and they both have yellow, so I can say that I was tipping them uh, before it even started. <laughs> and finally, last but not least, as always, you may have read him on the raw.com. It's Mr. Tom Dev. Tom, how are you? Go, doing well and great to be back. One of the things we've never really established is I think I'm the tallest, so I play center, but we haven't got positions for everyone else if, we, if we're the court, if we're the team. So who's, who's the smallest? Raise your hands if you're under 5'9", because Jack looks tall, but we've talked about it <laughs> previously. He's not a tall bloke. No, I'm about five foot ten, so um, I'd, I'd like to say I'm a point guard who passes off and never shoots. So our tall point guard can be Jack. Can anyone shoot or are we all tragics? I'm, I'm a bit of a shooter. <laughs> I'm not that tall, but I am a shooter. So Jules says he'll take the shooting guard. So Tom and Yuri, you got to fight it out for the three, four spots. Small forward. <laughs> Tom, you better be able to stretch it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I can. Maybe, maybe a corner three sort of guy. Look, maybe if I ever make the trip, we can all go down to Melbourne and we'll get onto the court. Look, guys, uh, again, I say this every week. It was a fantastic week to be an NBA fan. We'll get uh, started on a couple of stuff that happened with our news recap and then straight into the round two reviews because, God, playoff basketball is so much fun. And the first thing uh, I want to talk about is the Milwaukee Bucks have officially fired uh, Coach Mike Budenholzer. Um an interesting stat that's come out, Coach Bard obviously spent 17 years with the Spurs and his assistant before he moved to the Hawks. The last five years he's been with Milwaukee, um, Milwaukee have the most playoff wins and the most regular season wins in the league in that, in that you know, period of time, and he's still got the axe. Um, really quickly, Jack, I just want a, a bunch of opinions. Is this the right decision? No, it's not. I think it's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to happen straight away, and um, it's a big stat that's going around, but three of the last NBA uh championship coaches have been fired. The only one not being Steve Kerr. You obviously had Nick Nurse from the Toronto Raptors. Um, and the other one has just escaped me off the top of my head right now. Um, Frank Vogel from the Lakers, um, as well as Mike at now Milwaukee. And again, I think it's just a quick reaction that's happened. Um, they've been bundled out, but you can't win the championship every year. And um, you, only two years ago, won a championship. So for me, it's the wrong decision. What about you, Alex? Look, we might touch on, because I, I want Milwaukee to get uh, Nick Nurse. I don't think they fire Coach Bud if they don't think there's a better coach out there, and maybe Nick Nurse is that better coach. Um, Tom, do you think this is the right decision? I definitely think it's the right decision. Uh, I think you can live in the past as long as you like, but the reality is that championship season, had Harden and Kyrie been healthy, I think that Nets team might have gotten over them. Uh, they did beat that Hawks team in the conference final, which look at them now. Uh, and then his in-game adjustments weren't great. And also, I mean, Spo just did circles around him in that Miami series, and you can't waste Giannis's prime. Lopez, Middleton, Holiday, all over 30. They had to make this move now. Otherwise, they risk only one championship with this great core. Yuri, your thoughts? 
I think looking on it now, Alex, I think probably is the right call. Although, you know, the circumstances, you know, the last you know, couple of days with Bud were extremely tough. And I think some of the, you know, coaching decisions, especially in the playoffs, Alex, we there was numerous video clips about, you know, I think when the Toronto Raptors made, you know, the switch with Kawhi Leonard guarding on Giannis and Kawhi, you know, took the task and said, well, I'm ready to guard Giannis and completely shut, them, shut him down. And I think looking at series, it was almost like, what was Coach Bud going to do to help, you know, Giannis, you know, free up again? And there wasn't too much, you know, implementations and strategies to get that going. And, you know, it's something that really cost the Bucks in the end and not getting through to the NBA Finals that year. And, of course, we saw in Game 5 against Miami when he didn't call the timeout with 0.5 mm, seconds yeah. remaining. And, you know, there were numerous other players, especially I think Game 4 as well when, you know, Miami got within six and there was about three minutes left and Bud again didn't decide to call a timeout, which will have at least, you know, you know, at least set foot in terms of, you know, just restarting again and, you know, trying to at least take the crowd out of it down in South Beach. And again, he didn't decide to go ahead with it. So there's some of those real sort of, I think, basics in a way which, you know, he decided not to, you know, go with. And I think it really sort of bit him in the end and it's, in, the, in a way, it's an absolute travesty because, you know, his regular season, you know, coaching the Milwaukee Bucks since he took over in the summer of 2018 was, you know, phenomenal. You know, taking mm. the Bucks to 60 wins in his first season and, you know, 50 wins after that, you know, 58-24 record this season. But it's just something I think come to playoffs as well. And it was also the same thing which occurred in Atlanta when he led the Hawks to, you know, 60-22 record. And I think that, like, four or five All-Stars that year with Damari Carroll, Jeff Teague, Al Horford, Paul Millsap and Kyle Korver. I think it was the whole five, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Stretching my memory, but I think you're right. Yeah. And again, I think the same problems lay ahead when they played Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals and it ultimately sort of bit Atlanta back because they did make those, you know, tactical changes to stop LeBron and Kyrie. And again, it was almost just the same repeating cycle all over again. And, well, you know, sometimes, you know, it does run its course and, you know, sometimes, you know, change is good and we'll have to see what happens from here. Yeah, Jules, I wonder if you feel like this is a long time coming for Coach Bud as well. Uh, I did hear a really interesting um, possibility on the Ringer podcast today is that the coach swap between Toronto and Milwaukee might be on. Nick Nurse might come from Toronto to Milwaukee and Milwaukee Coach Bud might go to Toronto because he's a fantastic culture and organisational setter. Uh, any particular thoughts on this one, Julian, before we move on? Uh, everyone makes really good points. I think time will tell. Um, I was um, kind of with Jack thinking that decision was made kind of quickly. And we're talking about a Jimmy Butler shot, you know, that was ridiculous that went in and forced overtime and then they won. I mean, if that didn't go in and the Bucks make it through to the next round, what happens? So I don't know. I think time will tell. You all make good points with Nick Nurse being able to bring something. But what we don't want is to, the Bucks to fall into the uh, EPL culture where you blame the coach for the mm. team losing and then, you know, just cycle through coaches and then destroys the culture. So I don't know, time will tell, but I think it was um, a bit hasty to the decision. Moving on to probably what should have been our A story is Joel Embiid won his first MVP, the Cameroonian-born center. Uh, a long time he had to wait for this one. He's been a perennial candidate for a couple of years now, finishing second and third in the last couple of years. Uh, Jokic finished two, Giannis three, Tatum four. And surprisingly, our sexiest boy, Shea Gildas-Alexander, finished fifth in the MVP voting. Uh, anyone got any massive thoughts on this one? Yuri, I can see you've got a little bit to go on. Yeah, that was, you know, an excellent season from Embiid. I think a couple of years ago, right, Alex, in the 2020-2021 campaign, 
he will definitely have won MVP if he hadn't missed 21 games that season. And there's just so much of, you know, Embiid's game, which, you know, he said when he first came to Philly that, you know, it was to trust the process. You know, the 76ers had absolutely been, you know, down in the mire. They only won, I think, 10 games in the 2015-16 campaign. And it was always going to, you know, take a bit of work. He, you know, of course, had his, I think it was foot problems as well at the start of his NBA career. But everyone knew sooner than later Embiid was going to become this, you know, absolutely beast of a, you know, superstar center. And he's delivered on his word in Philly. And the only thing now that needs to, you know, happen is to win a chip. And now they're 2-1 down against Boston. And, you know, him coming back after missing the closeout game four against the Brooklyn Nets because of that sprained LCL injury to his knee. And he, he looked good today. But I think there was other parts as well. When you come back from, you know, missing, you know, a couple of weeks, haven't, shouldn't, should I say, having played a couple of weeks and, you know, trying to get your conditioning back is always tough, but he did extremely well to fight through that today. And, you know, so much of, you know, Philly's hopes are going right through him and Harden, of course, Harden, you know, unfortunately, you know, couldn't make a shot today. So there's so many, you know, aspects with Embiid, you know, his passing, there's that particular spot we've spoken about where him and Harden operate that pick and roll spot from the you know, high pick and roll screen or sometimes, you know, at times where Embiid will get to that particular, you know, his favourite spot in the elbow. And teams, unfortunately, or all other 29 teams can't, you know, figure out a way to stop him because he's that good. And also at the same time, you know, trucking his way to a rim when, you know, he's got two or three bodies that, you know, are lining up close to the basket. So there's so many aspects where Embiid has, you know, improved, you know, as the seasons have gone by. And it just makes him such a real, you know, Force away, it feels right is. for him, doesn't it? Yeah. If you look it at does. the last five years in the NBA, the last five years, the MVPs, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, and now Joel Embiid, and you look at the history and go, that sounds about right. Maybe Steph Curry's been unlucky not to get one in there somewhere, the way the Warriors have been. Um, but I was glad to see Embiid be awarded that. Fourth place, Tom, uh, you're our resident Celtics head. Tatum's at four. Do you feel like that's fair? Yeah, I'd say overall it's fair. He started off the season just red hot out of the gates, sort of went into a bit of a slump around uh, that late December, early January phase. Uh, but overall, the Celtics still finished second in the East. They're now, they were a championship favorite throughout. His three-point shot, quite uh, overrated at the moment. If you actually yes. look at the numbers, uh, he's not missing a whole lot, but really he is. Uh, if you actually watch the games, he's not making the shots that he should be. Um, but he's also a two-way player, which doesn't really get factored in on the score sheet, but he does tend to take maybe the second best uh, player on the other team. And I think, yeah, fourth overall, I think that's fair. But um, Embiid winning, I think that was the right call. And Jokic, Embiid having a 2-1 split overall for these MVPs is fair. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think Embiid wins another one now. I think yeah. he's I think he's now going to go into that Kawhi Leonard and low management sort of stuff because this is, what, the fourth playoff run in a row Embiid's been injured now. So I think he's got that MVP. And now I don't think we see him play over 60 games. I wouldn't blame him one bit. And Shea Gildas-Alexander becomes the first Canadian to ever receive an MVP vote. I didn't know if any one of you saw that this week. Um, Jack, do you have thoughts on Dylan, Brock, uh, Dylan Brooks Excuse me, being told by the Memphis Grizzlies that he's not to return under any circumstances? Well, it's a great segue. We've just gone from the MVP to the LVP, probably the least valuable player when it comes to um, the series. Just gone from the Lakers, but um, in all seriousness, uh, he is still a bit of a role player. Um, we know what his antics are like off court and um, shooting his mouth off, calling LeBron old and everything else, which anyone listening to this, I'm sure, is all around at the moment. But um, to put it into context, he's 14.3 points a game and he's averaging roughly three, 
three assists, three rebounds as well on 40% shooting. So for a team that finished uh, second in the West and he's a starting player in that side, I think he still gets picked up. Um, There's big talks that he could go to the Miami Heat that have been looking at him. And there's slight interest in my Detroit Pistons, which I hope they uh, handball that on very quickly. But, um, yeah, look, the off-court stuff, it is what it is. Um, It creates that bit of that villain story, probably even more amplified than what Trey Young was a few years ago against the New York Knicks. But when you're talking like that, you've got to back it up and you've got to be that sort of team role player and, um, even some of his comments saying, well, they didn't give me the opportunity. They only wanted me to play 3 and D. Um, he's already bad-mouthing um, the organisation he's just left. So uh, he will end up on another NBA team, I believe, um, but I have no idea where. Hopefully it's not Detroit for you. Uh, and really briefly, Christian Wood, uh, Shams Sharani from The Athletic reporting that he's unlikely to return to Dallas. Had an interesting year in Dallas um, as a starter there for parts of it, but uh, down on slumps in points and rebounds from his two years prior in Houston. Last thing we need to talk about is probably a good segue. It's a Chris Paul injury. Um, Yuri, we picked you to talk about the Suns Nuggets series. It's currently unfolding. I believe it's early in the fourth quarter of game three as we're recording. And Chris Paul did suffer a groin injury. I believe it was game two, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, How have you seen this series and uh, who do you've got picked out at the end? Yeah, so we spoke about it last week, Alex, as well, our serious prediction. I think Nuggets winning in seven. I think, you know, overall with the bench depth that they've got and Coach Monty Williams, you know, in terms of basically, I think in a way just, you know, he said, you know, very specifically not be able to, you know, he didn't utilize his bench a lot more, which, you know, he currently has in game three and has worked, you know, affect at this stage because they currently lead by 11 with 926 left in game three. I think we look at game one as well and what Denver did really, you know, exceptionally, Alex, too, is I think that second quarter in the non-Jokic minutes where they played Aaron Gordon at the five and really opened up, you know, a, well, a considerable lead enough. And it was something that I think going into the series was going to be of concern, but they managed to figure out a way along through there. And Bruce Brown's game one was, oh, it was he was tremendous, Alex. He was, He's been yeah. tremendous since, you know, he you know, signed with the Denver Nuggets during the summer and he had the 14 points in 25 minutes. But there was those couple of steals he had as well, which basically you know put the game to bed. There was that poke away steal. I think it was his second steal of the night on Kevin Durant where Durant had no idea that he was lurking behind him, slapped the ball away from him, grabbed it, raced down the other end for you know, the emphatic dunk and basically you know punctured the tires of the Phoenix Suns with about five minutes left in game one. So... And Jamal Murray's 34 points too was just absolutely clinical because we saw in game two that he couldn't buy a bucket at all. He used three (laughs) of 15 for the game. He was missed all nine of his threes, but he came up with two very important buckets late, which, you know, the Nuggets absolutely put the clamp on the tires on the Phoenix Suns, holding him just 87 points. Durant, you know, couldn't, you know, shoot himself through the ocean, which, you know, he normally shoots, what, 53 to 55 percent from the field each yeah, he's just gotten game. hot in game three i don't know if you guys are watching in the corner he's just picked up his 30th point so he started to get hot at the end of this game three which is a good sign for phoenix fans i'm um, sorry to interrupt you yuri um go ahead yeah so basically i think those you know contributions alone Jokic has just been an absolute monster and i think something watching the opening half of game three that phoenix have decided to do a little bit differently of course they've played jock land out this series but his physicality they try to really sort of you know ruffle up Jokic too and try and make, you know, life as, you know, as difficult as possible for him, you know. And it's something that, you know, 
I think a you know, way for Phoenix, you know, is something that's you know working out too because DeAndre Ayton's just been absolutely been you know blitzed alone by Jokic, and you know I think he only had about four field goal attempts to half time. So they really need you know Ayton to you know get up and firing too. And I think there was something else. I think after game one, which you know Phoenix decided to take a lot more of. And that was of course the three pointers only seven of twenty three in game one. They're six of thirty one in game two, and I think they've shot the ball a little bit better at the moment. So. Again, just those things too. I think, I think you know, going you know smoothly enough for Phoenix at this stage. But I think Denver's you know figure out another thing defensively as well, Alex. That you know we haven't spoken about yet. But I watched a video on YouTube, a very good basketball YouTuber goes through you know the different strategies and players that you know in terms of you know defensive and offensive you know terms. And I think something that the Nuggets have done very well is not allowing Nikola Jokic to be exposed, you know, defensively too. And, you know, being, you know, absolutely taking the school in terms of, you know, being blown by. They've, you know, they've thrown him sort of in a way that hedge term. So where he yeah. hedges over and then rotates back to his man. So therefore... I think I've seen the same video by uh, Ben yeah. Taylor at Thinking Basketball. And, and what you're saying is, is exactly right. The Nuggets were allowing um, Jokic to hedge and basically uh, play defense between one and a half men and not get exposed. So he was able to recover. Um Shout out to Ben Taylor. Some great X's in those videos. Uh, t- sorry to interrupt, Yuri. Uh, who have you got for this series? Because I know this, it's a hard question to ask. There's eight minutes left in game three, and Phoenix are up by nine points. Um, do you see enough from the Nuggets in the first two games to pick them? Oh, absolutely. I have, I have been winning in seven games, Alex. I think, you know, too, if, you know, Contavious Caldwell Pope, he'll make his threes, you know, when they need him to. And, off the bench too, Jeff Green still got, you know, plenty of hops for guys turning 37 this yeah, year. How? We saw, what, 12 years ago, right, Alex, you noticed very well that he had to undergo basically what was, you know, a, almost a career-ending, you know, heart surgery, remember, when I think the Cleveland Clinic, which is arguably one of the, you know, top, you know, medical, you know, hospitals in America where he underwent the surgery and, you know, his career was delicately hanging in the balance and for him to come back from that was, you know, Absolutely incredible. And now why he's doing it his age, I think just, you know, speaks volumes of, you know, his perseverance and, you know, the adversity that he's been through and still what he provides as well, Alex, because I think he's played for like, I'm pretty sure like 10 different teams alone as well. He's been cut, you know, he's been, you know, bounced around. But I think there's always something valuable about Jeff Green, which teams, you know, find. And that's what the Denver Nuggets have found for the last couple of seasons. Tom, I know you wanted to touch on this series as well. How do you see it shaking out? I think Nuggets sort of got a stranglehold on the Suns in the first two games. Uh, And, you know, halfway through this fourth quarter, it looks like the Suns may hold on, although Denver is pushing pretty hard. I think from a big picture standpoint, though, I think the season sort of parting for Denver here. Where you look at the other teams, you know, the Lakers and Warriors look like they're going to battle that out in seven games. Celtics just keep shooting themselves in the foot and losing games they really shouldn't be. 76ers have already gotten beat injured. Um, and Harden, you, who knows what you're going to get from him. You think the Knicks and Heat are also going to be a seven-game sort of battle battle it out, and, you know, how long can Jimmy keep doing this? Who knows? Um, and so he sort of leaves the Nuggets to get through the finals relatively easily if they can get through this Suns team, you'd think. Um, and you look at just last year's finalists, you know, the Celtics had a hard-fought series against the Nets, then a rock fight against the Bucks, and then seven games of playoff Jimmy, whereas the Warriors had that injured Nuggets team, that injured Grizzlies team, and then a Mavs team in five. And come playoff time, that really sort of made a difference. Whereas the Celtics just ran out of gas and the Warriors looked like they could have gone for another series easily. All right, moving on to our next series. Uh, it's the Knicks and the Miami Heat. Tied at 1-1 after two games in Madison Square Garden. 
Game one, Jimmy Butler kept his heroics going on for just a little bit more. He had 25 points before succumbing to an ankle injury. Uh, with about five minutes remaining in this game, was a nine or 10-point game at that period of time. So it's quite unfortunate for Jimmy. He's still listed as uh, day-to-day or questionable, I believe, um, ahead of game three. But he had 25, and the Heat got a lot of points from everyone in game one. They got 20 out of Gabe Vincent. They got 18 from Kyle Lowry off the bench. Um, and I know, Jack, you watched game two. I, I wasn't able to see a lot of game two, but that was the Jalen Brunson 30-point game. Am I right? Yes, it was. Uh, 30 points and five rebounds as well for a small man like myself, which is great. <laughs> but um, there's probably two players. Um, obviously, the Knicks got that game. They won it by six. But there's two players for me that really stand out um, and players that you wouldn't think would stand out in games. And RJ Barrett's one of them. Um, he dropped, he had 24 points and he was prolific early. Um, he has, he has these green shoots where you go, he's going to be a real star. And then he sort of tapers off a bit. So if he can sort of hold on to that sort of form, um, the Knicks can sort of be anything on their day, considering that they've got, um, that they've got Brunson and they've got Randall as well. But um, another player, even though they lost the game, is Gabe Vincent. Um, he had 21 points, 21 points and five assists. And the game before that, um, he had 20 points and five assists as well. And to finish out just before that series as well against Milwaukee, he had 22 and six. So um, for me, Gabe Vincent, he's a player that, um, especially on my own podcast, that I sort of give him a bit of stick because I don't, I haven't seen how he's been a starter in a team and and whatnot, but he's been fantastic the last three games and that series is going to be a cracker going to the finish. How do you see it, Alex? Um, I've really liked Gabe Vincent's production and Caleb Martin. I think the two of them combined for 43 points a game too. I saw some of the highlights and I can't quite remember if it was Gabe Vincent that got cracked in the face and then went on like an 8 no row by himself. They look similar. They look look a bit similar. (laughs) They do. I can't tell. Um, Yuri, I know you saw a bit of this series as well. 60 seconds on how you've seen it. No, it's been, you know, very tough and very physical thus far, Alex, too. And Brunson spoke about it after game one where I think it was 11 of 23 from the field. He missed all seven of his three-point attempts, even though he scored 25 points in the game one loss. He said he had to be better. And we saw, you know, after very you know, slow opening half, which he only scored seven points, completely went off in the second half for 23 points, hit a number of vital jump shots late down the stretch where, you know, Miami just wouldn't go away, even with Jimmy Butler on the sidelines with the ankle injury. And I think it's just the DNA that, you know, Miami have got in the way too, where, you know, it doesn't matter who's on the floor, they're always going to compete. And we saw it again, game two. And I think the other part too is Julius Randle returning from that left ankle sprain again. And he had that excellent drive early on. I think the score was 9-5, I think with 8-9 left in the first and sort of really set him up for, you know, what was to occur. And although he only shot 8 of 18 from the field, he still had, you know, 25 points, 12 rebounds and 8 assists. And I think this is where, you know, Randle's facilitating really comes into play for the Knicks as well because it takes a lot of pressure of Jalen Brunson not to be the primary ball handler, you know, 99 times out of 100 and allowing Randall to operate, you know, from the block where he can, you know, he's an excellent passer from, you know, down low post back out to your shooters at the top of the key. So, you know, they've got their one-two punch rolling again and Isaiah Hartenstein is the other one just want to touch upon too because Tibbs has really instilled a trust in him late in games as well where, you know, if this was Tibbs, say, Minnesota or Chicago, where he will have gone with Joachim Noah and Carl Anthony Towns down the stretch again. Play all the old vets, yeah. Yes, yeah, the old vets and, you know, the starting centres. And no, he went with Hartenstein, not because, you know, he only scored the three points and only had, but two field goal attempts. He had nine rebounds and he had so many hustle plays too, which set up a lot of, you know, second chance opportunities for the Knicks. And those are just the, you know, 
very small intangibles which go a long way and again it's something you know they've got a real luxury now the Knicks playing you know either Mitchell Robinson if he does get in foul trouble which you know he's very prone to and Hartenstein of course he had his foul troubles but he was still able to you know deliver you know major production. Tom, it'd be unfair if we picked anyone else to speak about the 76ers and Celtics series. Uh, I kind of want to do it just to be a bit of a jerk, but we'll let you talk about the series as Boston lead 2-1. They did drop that first game, which I called last week a trap game against Philly without Embiid. Uh, Talk to us about the Celtics and how they've been flogging the 76ers. Yeah, I'll go through each of the games just real quickly. But I did say last week as well that uh, James Harden (laughs) constantly gives the Celtics trouble. And look what happened in game one, 45.6 assists. 56.7% 56.7% from the field, 7 out of 14 from 3. It was wonderful took, to watch that, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe not for everyone, but for some <laughs> I can see. Um, but only four free throws are ta- taken, which is just nuts for James Harden, who is known as a free throw merchant. Um, and that clutch three-pointer, I, I think that was just that's going to be probably the first game people are going to show for this Sixers version of James Harden. Um and you look at, you know, coming into the series, the idea was that these Boston guards could deal with him. But uh, Marcus Smart matched up on him on 31 possessions and he scored 18 points and went six from six. Brogdon matched up on him for 10 possessions, four points, one of five shooting, so not too bad. Derek White, four possessions, four points, two out of three shooting. So they didn't really contain him at all. Um, and the Celtics defense was just horrendous. They, I think they went to that game going, no Embiid, no problem. We'll just sleepwalk through this. Uh, and but the, the one positive is they realized no Embiid we can get anything in the paint and they just went as hard as they could at that rim. But uh, threes beat twos and Philly just littered them up from three, which the Celtics aren't used to. Normally they're the one who locked them up from three. Um, well, they did turn the tables on the games twos and threes. I, I, I know you've been watching those, but they were lighting them up from three today. Yeah, um, keep going, but you, you're spot on. Yeah, and then you know Joe Mazzulla, questionable, no, no real in-game adjustments, uh, which really was quite hard uh, to watch as a Celtics fan because there were some obvious things that they could have maybe changed up and they decided not to, especially the the switches. But that being said, credit, I'll, I'll give them credit where due. Game two was a completely different story. The defense was just different. They stopped doing these switches with Harden, uh, and Jalen Brown picked up Harden from the get-go. The moment that ball was tipped back to him, Jalen Brown was in his face, and the whole entire game basically which led to Harden shooting 14% from the field. And it was back to playoff Harden. That's what we expected sort of to see. Um, and Al Horford, while he did shoot the ball horribly, with Embiid back, that's what he needs to do because he needs to draw Embiid out of that paint. Because in that first half, Embiid had five blocks. And, you know, Jalen Brown tried to send him send him back to the bench, but uh, Embiid just completely blocked him and stuffed him out of there. Um, and, you know, three-pointers made the difference in that. Celtics 20 from 51, Sixers 6 from 30, and it was a blowout game. And, I mean, Tatum had seven points. Uh, so, yeah, seven points uh, and was in foul trouble, but didn't even matter. They blew them out. And then game three, Tatum today decided to make up for it and in the clutch was just absolutely huge. Um, you know, in the last three minutes of the fourth quarter, Tatum scored seven points by himself. Sixers only scored six. Uh, and then he had that huge uh, fadeaway jumper and then that clutch step back three over Harris, which sealed that game. Um, and then, you know, again, another poor performance from Harden today. 16 points, six rebounds, 11 assists, five turnovers, 21% from the field. And the way I describe I describe him is he looked like a kid who went to the doctor with their mum. And when the doctor asked them the question, they just sort of go, oh, no, 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 you answer it, you answer it. Because he had open shots at the rim that he just kept passing out. And occasionally it led to threes, but he had time to just hit a floater up and no one was getting it. And he just, very passive. So I expect him to probably have 30 points next game based off that performance. Um, and then Al Horford shot five for seven from three. 
And Celtics, first team in NBA history to shoot 90% from the line in four straight games. And I'm going to jinx it, but Jalen Brown, who's noted, who no, normally misses a few free throws here and there, 15 from 15 from the line so far. And that has been crucial. So I expect the Celtics to maybe lose the next game, but I reckon they'll close this one out in six. Just a quick question for everyone. That's a great synopsis as well, Tom. I reckon Jalen Brown's been unreal. Where do we see, um, from the 76ers' point of view, where do we see Tyrese Maxey's future? Because there's stages where people say he's a rising star and he's up there with your De'Aaron Foxes, Trey Youngs, um, Luka Doncic and that. But when you talk about the the two at Philly, you say Harden and Embiid, and then sometimes people say, oh, Tobias Harris is number three or Tyrese Maxey's number three, but sometimes he comes off the bench. For a bloke that's averaging 20 points this year, do you think that he should stay in Philly or do you think that he should leave and become sort of like what SGA when he left the Clippers has become an OKC potentially? Tom, you're probably best to answer that first. Uh, look, personally, I think Harden should probably leave the Sixers team. I think the Sixers should yeah. let Harden go. Um, he's injury prone and he's shot. I mean, yes, that game one was basically his, you know, give me the money, show me the money sort of sequence. But game two and three has shown that he can't do that every playoff game. Uh, Maxi's what probably about twelve years younger. He's got that real good zip off him, and it, it has given the Celtics a bit of trouble at times. But they've sort of adjusted. But I, I think Maxi and Embiid could sort of be a nice one-two punch, and maybe bring someone else in. Um, funny you mentioned that, Jack, because I because um, I, I looked at a lot of NBA props and and how players perform when players aren't in the team. And just a quick um, one of Maxi's stats without Embiid and Harden in the team. So we're talking about if he was to leave them and, and being a team where he was, I guess, the front man. Look at some of his points when across this season when um, Harden and Embiid went in the team. 29 points, 27 points, 32 points, 26 points, 31 points, 32 points, and um, an average of about five assists um, off the top of my head. So, yeah, you can see the difference it makes when the game doesn't go through those two superstars. Yeah, this guy gets it. I like it. Mm. Knows what I'm, <laughs> Julian knows what I'm, where I'm about, where he I could go that. somewhere else. Yeah. Jules, that's probably a good segue if you've got anything else to say on that 76ers and Celtics series, but we got you pegged to talk about the Lakers and Golden State. So anything on that Sixers uh, Celtics series before you move on? Tom summed it up really well. I'll just say, though, that we I think everyone in this podcast really um, was in favour of Malcolm Brogdon receiving the Sixth Man of the Year award over quickly, and I think he's proven that just in his last three games alone. The first game, 20 points. The second game, 23 points from six out of 10 threes. And today, 15 points and six assists. And he rebounds when he wants to. He can add so much defensive power, three-point shooting. I, I just think he's the perfect six man. I know Alex and I both had a bet on him as well. So, <laughs> My multi a- came off with yeah, Embiid getting his MVP. I didn't want to rub it in, boys, but it came off a yep, couple of cheeky yep. hundred. Love it. No, so, yeah, he's been superb. And I think, um, thank gosh, they gave him the award because he's doing everything you want out of a six man. So that Lakers-Warriors series has been really interesting for a couple of reasons. It's like the stylistic clash, and we saw that um, between Games 1 and Games 2. Game 1, Lakers come out um, and work their way to the free-throw line, some mid-range shooting while the Warriors try and bring the game back late from distance. Um, Anthony Davis had that massive 30 points, 23 rebounds. I think he had four blocks in that Game 2. But Game 2, you see the the other side of that is Clay Thompson has eight three-pointers in two and a half quarters, basically, and the game opens up because it's just too hard for the old bodies and the big bodies in the middle of the lane for the Lakers. Uh, Julian, what else have you seen in this series? Um, Because I think it's super interesting still. It's like this – it almost feels like an old versus young, but Steph Curry's 35 (laughs) and LeBron's 38, so there's no young team. Um, How do you see the series? 
Super, super interesting series. I actually, and I'm, I'm sure everyone will disagree with this, I actually think the Warriors will close this out within six or maybe even less. I think they're far classier than them in terms of their depth. Um, the first game, the Warriors took 53 attempts from three and Paul Thompson and Curry all had six threes each. You look at that and you go, wow, how did they actually drop that game? I think it came down to, we, we call them in this podcast sometimes the undersized Warriors. And then you see AD, you know, 23 rebounds and 30 points, four blocks. I mean, he was just unbelievable. But then in the second game, a lot more focus and attention was on him. They defended him quite better. And um, and then, yeah, th- th- it exposed them a lot as well. Um, and the first game as well, like Warriors, they, they kind of crawled it back and got their act together in the fourth quarter. And then, you know, Jordan Poole took that shot, um, you know, with eight seconds left, which a lot of people are arguing probably wasn't a good shot. I don't it, think that was a good shot on any planet. It's interesting though. He was six for 10 from three at the time he took that shot. So I think you're kind of well within your right to take, although in saying that you're right, like he took it when there was space in front of him with eight seconds to go. So yeah. And he's not Steph Curry or Clay Thompson, but when you're six out of 10 from three, I think you're within your right to go for the game winner. But I agree. That's probably what wasn't the most efficient shot. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think the second game showed a lot more what we expect. I mean, the Warriors just have so many avenues to the ring and they, they attacked the paint a bit more. Curry was more of a playmaker getting 12 assists. Draymond was, had nine assists. They were sharing the ball a lot more. And, um, to your point, Alex, which I read before, like the Lakers, they look a bit stagnant on offense when AD is off. LeBron, you know, it goes through him, but then who else is chipping in? Vanderbilt is just, he's such a good defender, but he doesn't really offer them a lot offensively. He can knock down the occasional corner three, but really the Warriors can just leave him wide open as much as they like. You know, Austin Reeves, you know, I saw a video of him knocking down about 33s in a row before the game, but he goes missing sometimes in the games unless he's, you know, he's a confidence player. And then D'Angelo Russell as well, like, you know, he was a bit quiet in game two. I think the Warriors just have way too much depth for them. It just sort of depends on how they defend AD. Um, if the Lakers had a force this to a game six or seven, it really is on the shoulders of Anthony Davis. Yeah, I think you've touched on it there. I've heard a couple times on podcasts and shows around the league that they only need four good Anthony Davis games to win the series. <laughs> but can you get four Anthony Davis games? Yuri, how do you see the series? No, it's been, you know, really good thus far, Alex, and for, you know, what Golden State did, you know, yesterday in game two to emphatically, you know, take it out. And I think the biggest thing as well from game two to game one was, you know, points in the paint as well because, gee whiz, Golden State had a lot of difficulties, you know, penetrating the paint when Davis was, you know, just – standing right there ready to swat any ball into you know row six to chase a chase center and for you know i think they lost you know the points in the paint count pretty you know by double actually it was 54 28 and something they're able to figure out you know in game turn itself you know a lot of you know their barrage from downtown and absolutely blitzed the lakers and of course clay thompson had one of those you know playoff games yet again which you know the 30 points and eight threes which you know of course we saw you know seven years ago against okc and a must win in game six we had the 41 points and 11 threes and playoff clay came again and sort of there's this in a way i think going into the series as well alex too was how the lakers and I think we're going to, you know, cover around this constant motion offense, which Golden State has absolutely just perfected under Steve Kerr since he took over the team in the summer of 2014. And they mentioned in the broadcast as well about Troy Brown and, you know, him not, you know, staying close to claim, being caught up on screens and leaving him wide open. And I think those things as well, they've got to really tighten up on it because if it keeps happening over and over again, it's just, I think, in a way for the Lakers, they may not be able to figure it out. And the other part as well is the three-point shooting because I was just calculating up yesterday as well my game one takeaways piece as well. After that 
game one win on the road against Memphis, which they hit 16 or 37 triples. They only shot, I think, for the combined series alone, they only shot 30.9%. And the same issues, you know, occurred again in games one and two, which, you know, they couldn't buy a bucket from deep. And they really need to, you know, get that going with D'Lo, who was sensational game six against Memphis. But unfortunately, you know, the first two games has had, you know, his woes from downtown and Austin Reeves too. And, and LeBron as well, and he shot 19% run the first series against the Grizzlies and unfortunately, you know, hasn't, you know, got going from deep. So those little, you know, I think not inconsistencies, but I think those issues that the Lakers have got something you don't really have a lot of time to address, especially when you've only got, what, a 24-hour turnaround or 20, 48-hour yeah, turnaround. it's every other day, right? Yeah, they've yeah. moved on. So you're right. There isn't a lot of time to change your game plans. Um, Tom, I know you also wanted to talk about the free throw versus the spacing discrepancies in the series. Yeah, basically, from the first two games, what I can sort of see is this series looks like it's going to be free throws versus threes. Uh, you know, first uh, over the first two games, Lakers shot 35 from 46 uh, from the free throw line. Warriors, 15 out of 22. So big discrepancy there. Then you look at the threes. Lakers were 16 from 59, whereas the Warriors are 42 from 95. And it looks like that's just where Warriors are going to get their edge, but it also seems like that's where Lakers will get their edge because Warriors tend to shoot a lot more threes and you're not going to get to the line as much there. And, you know, Wiggins is going to drive a fair amount. But outside of Wiggins, you know, Curry, Clay, they're not huge at going to the rim. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if you can keep an offensive rhythm, though, for the Lakers just from the free throw line. And there was a quote, which I haven't got the exact quote in front of me, but it was uh, after the Simmons-Harden trade last year and uh, Nets went in and blew the sixes in Philadelphia. Um and after the game, KD sort of said that uh, the Sixers were getting to the line a lot, but because they were only shooting free throws, they weren't getting in an offensive rhythm. And when they needed to hit that field goal, they just they were completely out of rhythm. And I, I think that could generally come back to hurt the Lakers here in this sort of scenario. It's interesting. There's a lot going on um, in this series. And spoiler alert, your boys have got an article coming out this week on the NBA Live app by Sportsman where we talk about our main takeaways and the important things uh, in this series, I'm getting a lot of looks in our little Zoom meeting because there's three minutes left in this Denver Phoenix game and it's going off. I think uh, Booker's got 43 and Kevin Durant's got 36 because Jack's just messaged me. I wish we could figure out the way to sportscast this and so we could call over the top of the action, but it's quietly turned into a real barn burner of a game. So, two, two minutes left, Phoenix up now by eight on the back of that bucket. But, geez, this has really turned. Went through a period there in the last four minutes where there wasn't a bucket for a minute. I wish we should have delayed the recording, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jack, hey, we could start doing live streams of games as well. I don't know if Mojo's interested in that or the, the listeners out there, but we've all got like one eye to the corner on the camera, <laughs> and we're all, but we're all still like obviously um, interested in the chat we're having, but how good's basketball? Yeah, look, we don't have any pauses or edits. So you're not wrong. We probably should just live stream these games every Saturday. So look, if you're listening to this and you want us to live stream over a game, you hit us up on Instagram. It's Mojo Sports Network or Mojo Stateside. Jack, do you have a team of the week? This is something you usually have uh, in the can, but I didn't ask you this week. Is it the Phoenix Sun or is it on the back of this amazing performance now? Well, I did actually have my team, but I've just lost my trail of thought considering we just went off the fly there. So um, my team of the week actually is still the Warriors. Um, obviously, they didn't know how to capitalise like you boys have just spoken about on stopping the, in the paint, but that return to form, Clay Thompson, that first three quarters, um, they always say you've got to jowl at the right time of year and um, they're doing it right now. So for me, the Warriors um, are looking really, really good. 
but I do want the Lakers to win. So it's, that was a hard one to pick. That's a really good segue into Alex's secret segment. But what we might do is take a really quick break to watch the last minute and a half of this game, and then we'll come back with Alex's secret segment. Okay, it's time for Alex's secret segment. If you're new to the show, there's a segment every week where I don't prepare our panelists for what's going to happen and they have to figure out live on the fly uh, either a quiz or a scenario will get me to vote for them in a game. And Alex's secret segment this week is called Soft Spots. There's eight teams left in the NBA. A couple of weeks ago, we went through my Toronto Raptors have been eliminated. Our guest kindly gave me, me, the Milwaukee Bucks, as someone else to root for. And then about three days later, they lost in five games in the first round. So Soft Spots has the goal of getting me a new team that I feel great about. I feel, mm, I really want them to win. Uh, I'm going to run through our eight teams just to prepare our panelists. Yuri, Julian, Tom, and Jack, you'll have to vote and, uh, you know, 20 seconds on why you think I should vote for somebody. But off the top, here's a couple options for you. Golden State looking for their fifth title in eight years in their dynasty, which would push them past the Spurs. Uh, Manu, Timmy, and Tony won four championships in eight years and then won seven years later. As a trio, that Golden State Warriors version of Dre, Clay, and Steph uh, will have 100 wins together at the end of this Lakers series where the Spurs have that record of 126. So maybe you you feel it would be great for a dynasty to come through. The Lakers are looking for ring number five for LeBron to try and make him... uh, uh, equal with Kobe in LA and closer to Jordan. The second ring for AD might also secure their legacy. Uh, and this would be the first one for the Lakers fans in front of that home crowd because they won that bubble championship and there was no crowd in LA. 76ers, maybe you want Joel Embiid and James Harden to finally get a ring. Or for the Celtics, I think Tom's going to vote for them. It'd be, I think it's number 18 for the franchise, if I'm not wrong. Uh, and they're second since 1986. So this would push that consistently good Celtics team into a legendary status in Boston. But maybe for the Heat, this would be an all-timer if they come all the way through Jimmy Butler. Basketball Reference currently has him at a 73% Hall of Fame probability, but this one probably pushes him all the way to the top if they win a ring, and it's more recognition for Coach Spo. The Knicks, the city just deserves one in New York. They haven't won a title since 73. Maybe that's why you're going to get me to vote for them. And for the Suns and the Nuggets, neither of these teams have won before. It'd solidify Jokic as an all-time great if he won a title. Or maybe for the Suns, Kevin Durant's already got one. The CP3 finally gets a ring at the end of his career. Jack, I'm going straight to you. You've got no more time to prepare. Soft spots. Who is the best team remaining to win a championship? Well, again, I'm wearing their colors, but it's a different team again. I'm going with the LA Lakers. And- ah, and I can sum it up because, one, you're already a fan of them. I know that you are, so that's a little bit of a bias to get you on board. And number, there it is there. He's bringing up the bomber jacket onto the camera now as we speak. But um, And in a quick sentence on this one, LeBron James, fifth ring, Legault. That's why you should go for the Lakers. Oh, I can't believe I had this Lakers jersey hanging around for no reason. Just throw it on. Tom, Oh, you're probably going to pick the Celtics and the arch nemesis of the Lakers, but go ahead. No, you know, after uh, after the last round and after watching what James Harden did to us, I don't think I, I need to put anyone else through that emotional roller coaster and the, the disappointment that the Celtics can, uh, can cause. So I'm actually going to go with the Nuggets, just from the sense that Jokic is sort of the everyday man. Uh, and he's so much fun to watch. Uh, and there was a strange article that I was reading about. Uh, well, not reading. I heard over a podcast. Apparently, he wears... Uh, you know, fun underwear, and that's what makes him the everyday man. So go for Jokic, go for the Nuggets. 
Yuri, I saw you make a face, son. I think you wanted to pick the Nuggets. Was it because <laughs> I, of the fun underwear? Yes. No, no, I just had the Nuggets because I think the overall team culture that they've established under coach Mark Malone, you know, since he took over in 2015, they've, you know, gradually built a team around Nikola Jokic, which, which can, you know, deeply contend for the title. And we saw, you know, I think the heartbreak of the 2018 regular season when they lost to Minnesota in overtime and now it's for the eighth and final spot. And from there, you know, the team, you know, elevated to, you know, higher levels, you know, finishing second in the West the following season in 2018-19, of course, losing to Portland in that epic seven-game series in the Western Conference semis, making a conference finals you're being I too think, analytic for yeah, soft spots. Well. It's all about a feeling, yes. Yuri. I need you to give yes. me a feeling. No, I think as well, just the players too, Alex, as well. Nicole Jokic, you just can't dislike. Same with Jamal Murray. Contavious Caldwell, Pope, Bruce Brown. Those guys are just real, so professional too and, you know, just carry themselves in a very, you know, first-class way, which, you know, doesn't exude any arrogance, arrogance at all. And I think it's just, yes, the overall, you know, culture that the Nuggets have built over these last, you know, seven, eight years to get to where they are. So that's two votes for the Nuggets, Julian. This is going to be one hell of a pitch if it's going to overtake the Nuggets. Who have you got for soft spots? Uh, I'm going to go the Phoenix Suns for the soft spot, just for the CP3 reason alone. Um, I don't, Alex, what's the longest you've ever worked at a job for? The same job? Oh, don't do that to me. Probably five years. Yeah. Chris, okay. So Chris Paul has been in the NBA for 18 years and without a ring. I mean, come on. It's time. He's 37, 38, which is the fourth oldest player in the NBA without a ring. He's been playing for 18 years. I don't think I need to say too much more. I don't want to out myself on this podcast as a Chris Paul hater, but I think I just did. <laughs> well, it's time to change that because you go for that now. <laughs> oh, damn, thank you. Thank you. Look, it's, oh, you know, Suns and Nuggets, you do want to see a franchise get a ring for the first time. So, Jack, even though I'm wearing that Lakers letterman, I feel like the Lakers, they can get number 17 another day, right? Number 18, whatever it is for them. Although, you know, the way uh, LeBron's ankle injury is going, his foot injury, they might not get another chance. I didn't think about that. I'm going to have to pick the Nuggets. I've got two convincing pitches, one for Jokic so he can solidify. And they've got a couple of great guys in Jamal Murray. I'm not, going, I'm not ready to call Michael Porter Jr. a great guy, but uh, he's a really pretty shooter of the ball too. So that was a really quick edition of soft spots. I think the Nuggets is who I'm going to go for. And that's really good timing because they've just gone down to the Phoenix Suns. Booker and Durant had 84 in, oh, no, there's still 13 seconds remaining. What am I even doing? It's a, it's a seven-point game, but crazy things happen. Moving on to performance of the week. And, Jack, have you got a – you've got your team of the week. Have you got a performance of the week? Or was there too much playoff basketball this week for you to pick just one game? Um, it, I'm going to go across two games. I might be cheating here and it might be against the rules, but um, I spoke about him earlier, Gabe Vincent. Um, again, I gave him a lot of stick, and he stood up the test of time in his last three games, to be fair. So – Gabe Vincent, for me, if he can keep it up, he'll be in my good books. Yuri, I think you've got uh, another guy from that series for your performance of the week. Yes, Jalen Brunson. We touched briefly on Alex 2 to 30 points in game two, which, you know, he spoke about needing to be better. And, you know, he delivered yet again like we did, you know, Dallas in the first three games when Luca was out through injury. And that was only, what, a postseason ago. And, you know, solidified why, you know, he got the big bag in the end. And just those, you know, Nifty, crafty mid-range jump shots, which, you know, he perfects so well. And, again, when the Knicks needed him most down the stretch, he delivered because, who knows, you know, going 0-2 down, heading to South Beach for games 3-4 and would have been, you know, a very, you know, scary proposition. But now that the series is tied at one apiece, you know, the Knicks can, you know, take a lot of confidence, you know, going into those games as well, considering, you know, what he's done. Basically all season as well, Alex, too. It's just right from, you know, the very first game of the season and, 
he's basically just gone to, you know, new levels like what I did, you know, in Dallas when he got the opportunity to become, you know, the full-time point guard starter. And again, that just came through, you know, once more. And, you know, his combination of Randall too just, you know, helps Knicks, you know, go a long way. So again, full kudos for what he did in game two. And, you know, it's the big tick, you know, that he delivered on his promise. And again, for the Knicks as well to come away, which what should be, you know, another long series. Julian, your performance of the week. There's still a couple of performances left. Who have you got? Uh, sorry. I just see two Toms in the chat now and I'm getting super confused. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with the uh, James Harden 45 points. Seven from 14 threes, 17 out of uh, 30 shots. Um, and and the crucial the crucial winning shot plus some um, good stoppages in the last few minutes as well. I don't think um, they would have won without him. So the video was followed with two poor performances, but that game, uh, performance of the week for me. Hey, Tom, are you there? We lost yes. you for a moment. Who have you got for your performance of the week? Well, it's quite fitting that I was there one minute and uh, absolutely nowhere to be seen the next because I've got Anthony Davis <laughs> uh, with, uh, with 30 points, 22 rebounds, five assists, four blocks in game one. Um, he played all 48 minutes, uh, which he had to. The Lakers without him just looked completely lost, but he looked gassed at the end and couldn't really do much. And it, it paid, it, it paid uh, off for the Warriors in game two because Davis was nowhere to be seen. Um, but look, the Lakers need this kind of game out of Davis at least three more times in, in wins if they're going to actually advance. And whether he can do it, I don't know. But it, it's just great seeing him perform to this sort of level because we haven't really seen it since the bubble. I was greedy and I took Clay Thompson's game too um, with that eight three-pointers he made in two and a half quarters. He shot 11, eight from 11 from distance. He did play in the fourth quarter for a minute and then he was taken out. But, I mean, Clay shooting like that, it, what are you going to do? You can't do much about it. Oh, lads, that's the end of another great week of NBA basketball and unfortunately the end of our podcast again this week. As I said, during the show, uh, we've got an article, the five of us as panellists giving some opinions and some advice in the NBA Live app by Sportsmate. So keep your eye out for that. And if you've come here from that article, welcome. Thank you very much. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please like us uh, on Instagram or wherever you get your... Oh, geez, I really butchered this segment, lads. <laughs> please give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. We really appreciate it. You can follow us on Mojo Sports Network on Instagram. Anyone else got anything to say about the NBA action from Jack Brophy, Tom Dev, Julian Balthazar, and Yuri Bilsic? Oh, should be you know, another epic, you know, conclusion to the conference semifinals, Alex. Sweet. Well, we'll see you back here on the Mojo Sports Network next Sunday to recap everything in round two of the NBA playoffs and look forward to those conference finals. Thanks again for joining us. I really butchered that outro. I'm going to have to edit that pretty heavily. Ooh.